When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Injured at work in a motor vehicle accident or had a fall in a public space? Speak to Your Claim Lawyers, a no-win, no-fee, personal injury claims law firm that specialises in maximising compensation claims for injured people. Call 1-800-YOUR-CLAIM or yourclaimlawyers.com.au. This is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Always a pleasure to have your company for This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. And today we celebrate the life of a young man who certainly made his mark in footy, blazed across the skies like a comet. And he's one of the feel-good stories that we've had in football in recent times. Perhaps his career has just come to an end, perhaps not. We'll find out some more because Michael Barlow is my guest. Michael, welcome. Thanks, Pete. Thanks for having me. Lovely to have you here. The last time I saw you before you came into the studio, you were dragging your weary body onto a plane a couple of weeks ago. And uh, when I shook hands with you, I thought, there's a bloke who's happy the season's finished. <laughs> well, it hardly started for me. So um, yeah, that was my third game in the, in the seniors for the year. But I'd had, uh, yeah, very, very, I suppose, challenging year in terms of um, some injury and some um, I suppose challenges getting into the team, and um, yeah, it wasn't a wasn't a great year on the Gold Coast for for the Suns, um, or probably myself. But at the same time, we'll probably discuss some things I got out of the year, and and some things that you know help upskill me for for my future and and what might lie next. Speaking of the difficulty of the year for the Gold Coast Suns, part of that was because of one of the biggest sporting events in this country, the Commonwealth Games, and you almost had to lead a bit of a nomadic existence as a football club for almost half the year. Absolutely. So I think it was round 11, I think it was our first home game. So up until then, we had to be quite creative in in how we were going to use the fixture. Um, A home game in Cairns, a home game at the Gabba, uh, home game in China, and then the rest were on the road and uh, back-to-back in Perth where the boys that, that went over stayed for the week. And um, it's something I think that we didn't handle very well. I wasn't I wasn't there, but um, the first game we competed quite well and we were actually 2-0 and zero at the time. And then the second week, the air was out of the tyres and um, the, I think they were probably ready to get home. So... It's something I think you can't make excuses for um, around the scheduling. And, you know, you see American sports, they'll, they'll, their baseball teams will go on the road for three weeks and be away from family. And um, we've got to realise it was our job and, and our commitment and um, did quite a good job of it, probably for the first six weeks. And then it kind of really fell away um, leading into that mid, mid-year buy. Speaking of making excuses for it, do you reckon – that it becomes a little bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy that you've always got that thing in your back pocket. If you're not winning games, then everyone can say, oh, well, the reason is because we, we haven't got a home for 12 weeks. And then it almost fulfills itself. Yeah, I, 
I always have a bit of a wry smile when I listen to probably any coach or player or um, person within an organisation that gets asked a question and the amount of times someone says, oh, we're not here to make excuses, but then they proceed to, yes. to to talk for five minutes at length about some things that might have been challenging at the time. And um, that was you know, the case at the Suns. Like it was, There were challenges and I think we were aware it was going to catch up with us and there were going to be games that were probably um, – we we're going to miss miss out on because of you know the scheduling, um, which I think was the case. As I said, towards the back end of the, when we got over to China, I think um, yeah we were looking for the finish line, looking for that buy, and and looking forward to kind of getting home. So um, yeah, there, there were there were a few things I think the club could rely on that um, that would you know soften the blow a little bit externally. Do you reckon China's a worthwhile experiment? Uh, I know Gold Coast has said they don't want to be part of it anymore. It's big for Port Adelaide. It's big dollars. But are we just are we burning money? Is it simply something that's not going to catch on? Yeah, I played the first year there, and it was as a player, it was quite exhausting. It was. Um, I don't think we we did it as well as we could in terms of the scheduling. We were quite. Um, quite busy the days leading into the game and, and logistically to get to the ground was pretty much a three or four hour round experience and I remember the day before a game we drove did the trip did a captain's run all on the back of um, uh, getting some media exposure and it was going to be there was going to be some media opportunities there and so there was definitely compromises around you know being able to perform at your best I felt when we were over there and um I think they said it was a sellout the first game, but when we were running around, looking around, there was ample room for, for people to be there. Um, the Suns, we didn't have a great amount of support outside of some, some board members and family and friends, whereas Port Adelaide um, had a real significant advantage. They probably had oh, seven or 8,000 people there on, on their on the back of their, um, which I think now yeah, you're starting to see, which is, which is fortunate for them. A luxury for them because they've got probably fifty thousand members anyway. Whereas that, so that's probably ten percent, or what is it, twenty percent of their member base might see it as an opportunity to go away and have a bit of a holiday. Whereas twenty percent of our member base might have done the same thing. And there's only a thousand or or two thousand, unfortunately. So um, it, I think they'll stick at it. Oh, one thing I know about the AFL, they'll stick at it until. Um, you know, it's it's com- a complete write off, and, and even then they'll they'll continue to find ways. So I think they'll stick with it, and probably kind of a long way of answering. I feel feel it will be a worthwhile experiment. Um, you know, there was a, a buzz around the stadium the, the day of the game and the training days, but China's such a big, huge, enormous city that where we're staying, there wasn't much intrigue in in who we were or, or what was happening. What about the Suns themselves, Michael? Um, from down here, we see them as um, a team that has been heavily supported by the AFL. There's been stacks of money. They've put their faith into this franchise. Is it going in the right direction from what you've been able to see over the last couple of years? Um, I got to be relatively diplomatic about how I, I speak about them because I, I really enjoyed my time there. Um, and there's some really good people there that are assisting and investing so much to to see it go where it wants to go. I, I feel like it's my opinion that at the end of 18 compared to the end of 17, we're, prob- we're probably off the pace from where we were in 17. 
and that was with a change of coach, um, change of you know some key administration. So the twelve month, I suppose, teething um, of you know the, the transfer of those those roles um, has seen it. I think in a slightly worse position, but in terms of probably the potential to grow and improve um, is really there. And I think the, you know, Dewey's had a year there and I think he's really got to be judged on the next year. And I think probably quite critically because it's, it's time for the club to, you know, turn the wheels and dig, dig the heels in and stand for something. I feel like we probably didn't at times Um, this year. There was, um, you know, some really mediocre performances on field, um, and some issues again off off the field with player attention and and that kind of thing. So I think they're starting again, um, but this year there's I don't think there's time at the club to be able to say right, um, you know, next year is going to be another year where we're just drip feeding stuff in. They've got to have some good wins. They've got to be pushing on the door of the eight because. Clubs clubs do it around around the Suns and and from similar positions, but the Suns have never been able to do it. How much do you reckon the loss of Tom Lynch is going to mean to that football club? Because he is, in lots of ways, the marquee player. He is, if anybody is recognisable from the football club, he was. Uh, it'll be, yeah, extre- extremely difficult for them. I'd imagine with Tom's you know, top one or two percent talent players and ability in the competition and. Um, He's had a probably lean couple of years on his on the back of some injury and and his probably own personal standards. So, um, and that's probably further to my point I just made. I think the Suns for a long time have looked to Gary Ablett or looked to Tom Lynch, Stephen May, um, and been like, "Well, save us in certain games," and and at times they would and have the ability to. But I look at the Giants. I see players like Matt DeBoer come in. And go really well. Sam Reed, um, you know, off their play welfare, I think. Um, Nick Haynes, who's a guy that's probably un- underrated, but internally would be highly. We, I think the Suns have got to find players like that that they've pro- they've already gotten there, but build their mental character and their physical at- attributes to a point where it's Tom's not here, Gary's not here. We've got to find they've got to find something from within, and they're. Um, you know their, their players. I probably you know, look at the younger guys, Calamarchi, who's got a huge amount of talent, um, and guys of that similar ilk. Yeah, it's sh- sure, they've got got the talent, but it's really time for them to at times when when it go it gets tough, when it's not the ball's not bouncing their way or other players' way that day, they've got to dig their t- uh, toes in and and get busy. What about from a personal point of view, Michael? It must have been a really frustrating year in lots of ways. Did you see the writing on the wall that potentially this was going to be the last season? Uh, yeah, I was. I was pretty. You kind of you pick up cues um, along the way, so it was. Ne- you never, never really get told face to face that this is what's going to happen. It's kind of a slowly drawn out process, and um, I've been around long enough to understand that. And, and pick up on those cues. I think even as far back as the JLT um, started and um, some alarm bells, I suppose, for me were ringing when there's a squad of 30, you make the squad, but then you're not left in the 26 and you have the discussion and it's the discussion's based around that 
you know, the, the match committee is aware of what you provide and, and really happy with what you provide, but we're going to have a look at some unknowns and those unknowns, um, you know, probably performed really well throughout that JLT and early part of the year. Um, like Nick Holman and Aaron Young, um, those, those kind of guys. And, um, unfortunately, probably for me early in the year, I felt like, you know, that consistency and, um, over a career of nine years probably worked against me a little bit. Um, because they put the, the the squad that was in the JLT in early parts of the year performed really well, um, and then you know I kept just put the head down, kept working hard and and applying myself at the NEFL level and um, you know kept 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 it all together um, and, and got an opportunity I think around six and we lost to Adelaide pretty significantly and it was my first game in the in the side and I kind of walked off the ground and you kind of know despite I felt like I was one of definitely not our bottom few players, I thought I was okay on the night in a pretty ordinary performance and just finding my feet. But I kind of knew like it's when you're probably at my stage in a career in a developing team, it's um, you'll get one chance um, after, you know, eight or nine weeks of continual performance and buttering up and then it might be out. Whereas in other circumstances, other, player's circumstance might be, you know, they'll get eight chances and then it's finally back and then maybe one good one and they're back in. So that was the frustrating part for me, just looking around, um, upholding my end of the bargain, I felt, and doing quite well. Um, had a, had an injury mid-year, fr- fractured jaw, um, which had a nerve palsy with associated with it, which kind of kept me out for seven or eight weeks. And that's probably as frustrated as I've been in my career because it wasn't a broken leg or a fractured shoulder. It was, mm. um, yeah, I, I, I couldn't blink my eye to get back in the team, unfortunately. So, yeah. Do you have any good. ongoing issues with that now? <laughs> yeah, a little bit. Like I've got, um, you probably can see the radio listeners won't be able to see, but I, my, there's a slight lag in my eye blinking um, and my eyebrow doesn't lift. Um, so that, that'll come back, I'm, I'm, I'm told. If not, I might be making a trip to the Botox, uh, <laughs> the Botox um, factory, wherever that is. And um, but that's, I had moments where I kind of begrudged. Um, probably my my year in terms, I had real real issues getting out of bed, kind of that middle part of the year when I had this broken jaw, and um, kind of wasn't. You don't expect to be babied or treated, you know, like the golden goose every day of your life, but um, there, yeah, I felt pretty isolated during that period where um, I had some some close people that really supported me. Sean Hart was great for me, um, Nick Malcheski, Matt Primus, um, and then the playing group was great. But at, at times you feel um, when when you're going through, you know, a bit of career mortality and um, you're injured um, with a very very strange injury, which. It was it was confronting because I couldn't even go have a coffee or or lunch really um, without kind of being self conscious to an extent about it. And there were moments where I thought, "Well, what's the point? What's the?" It's uh, yeah, that it, it, it does have a significant effect on your kind of physical and emotional well being. Um, especially, yeah, I did the injury at NEFL level and played through it. I had a moment where. I knew I'd broken my jaw. It was about halfway through the second quarter. And I sat there and I thought, why would I go back out there? But it's always, I've kind of been the player along my career that's just done it and gone and 
gone out and butted up and I felt really great after the game because we went from a losing position to a winning position and enjoyed a really good win with a, a bunch of guys that are going to be great players for the club and great AFL players, I really hope. Um, but walking off, I knew I was going to miss a chunk of time. And um, there were, whilst I felt fulfilled, I also felt, you know, what am I doing this for? Um, which is confronting. When you can't get out of bed, that sounds as though it's on the borderline of a depressive illness. Yeah. Did you think you were going down that path at that time? Uh, I reckon I've had moments throughout my career that have, um, you know, not just this year, but it's funny you say that because I think, I think this last week has been um, and kind of the day after you know it's all over with certain organisations. I've experienced it as well at Frio. Moments where you just, like, what's going on? It's What are you doing with your life? There's got to be more to life, which I know there is. Um but I, the last week and a half, I've bounced out of bed really because of you. You lose those. Uh, you feel like there's a bit of a weight off your shoulders, and the what you've been involved in is over, and you've, you've applied it all to it. And there wasn't much more, I suppose, emotionally I could have given to my two years at the Suns. Like the second year was really quite challenging, and and you're right, like that middle part of the year where, so to put it in context, I had to tape one of my eyelids down to sleep. Um, kind of waking up in the morning, you're like, you kind of just want everything to click fingers and everything be better, but it's not the case. And then you have to you go into the club and do your rehab without being able to play. But like as the day would go on, you'd feel a lot better about yourself because you were, again, you, you were buying back into the program. And um, for me, a lot of the time, I felt yeah, the easier option would be to to sit it out and walk it with nuts too hard. It's yeah, it's, it's not going my way, but. I was really kind of, I suppose, um, proud of myself how I saw it out, and I eventually got back in the team. I suppose, despite probably only there's only probably two or three available to, to go back in, but um, you know, I sit here with a smile, smile on my face of how it kind of how I finished it off. You've got that smile on your face, but a lot of people who would have been through your circumstance would not have that smile on their face. They they say that football does a lot of things right, but one of the things they say it does wrong. The game is that. Whilst you're a, a commodity, you're very much in demand. Mm. And the sooner that you become, or the minute that you become not a commodity, the system spits you out. Have you seen a bit of that? Uh, yeah, certainly. Um, I was just speaking to John O, your producer, before about... I mean, I've, I've been nine years in the system and I haven't completely closed the door and playing playing on, but at the same time, it's not the be-all and end-all. I've got a big, a huge future ahead of me, whether it be... Um, you know, staying within footy clubs and having really learnt, you know, my, my footy career has been, um, there's been really challenging challenging aspects of it, but I, I wouldn't change much because I've learnt so much about it um, and about people management and um, understanding landscape and um, and then the, the the highs of it as well, going to grand finals and, and all that kind of stuff. And I spoke to someone yesterday about it that um, I think – Public perception of AFL players is, you know, you, the great Bob Murphy or Nick Rewalt who have outstanding one club careers and are lauded and, and they walk away and they get a chance to wave to the crowd. Matthew Pavlich, lap of honour, do the retirement speech to your, your players, your, your, your um, fans, your staff. But 98% are, I walked off against Geelong thinking this would probably be it. I'm looking around at my team and thought, 
yeah, there's 22 blokes out here and I'm guaranteed to not be wearing a Suns jumper anyway next year and it just it goes. Um, but I think some clubs probably do it better than others The and the PA is fantastic in terms of supporting that transition phase. I think the PA pick up a lot of the slack of clubs that you're right. It's the nature of it is once you're out the door, yeah, there's, there's no, there's no use for you. Like, um, but the PA is fantastic where they'll check in and, you know, provide opportunities. And, um, yeah. And from my point of view, it's, it's pretty confronting. It's pretty, it can be scary at times. Like, well, what's next? But, um, so what is next? Do you want to coach? Do you want to – obviously, you still have that little flicker in the back of your mind that you might be able to play. Can you still play at the top level, do you think? Yeah, I have huge, huge confidence that I can um, in the right environment, I'd imagine. Um, and that I would, wouldn't imagine I could go through a year like I've had this year. If I was to go to another club again on a rookie list or wherever it be, I'd, I'd really be aware of the situation that you'd be there to – probably as a bit of security and again, probably to do what I did this year if it was at the state league level and help others develop and come through. And if your opportunity arises, no worries. Um, so there is a burning ambition to continue to play, but at the same time, it's, that's probably a, a you know, slight chance. Whereas the, the other opportunities are, yeah, the coaching stuff, whether I want to stay in club land and get involved and play development, play welfare. I have a real passion in, um, Still want to play at some level, so kind of feel that you know, competitive streak. So the state leagues, um, there's some opportunities, and and I've always done a, a fair bit of media and really enjoyed that side of things. Like when I was going through uni, when you were calling me at the VFL days, I yeah. so it was always probably going to be a town planner, and that was probably the capacity I could could do because once you're not in the if you're outside the realms of once you're in the professional sporting landscape, it's like you get exposed to opportunities that are great. Um, and the media was something I really enjoyed doing a lot of in Perth. Um, and then I've done some some game day stuff, uh, Channel 7, which I've really enjoyed. So that's that's something I'm kind of ticking away on in the background, but I'm aware, uh, you know, it's a, as I said to you before, it's quite lucrative and, and quite chal- uh, quite hard to get into. Well, you talked about what might happen in the future. We'll take a break. When we come back, we'll talk about what happened in the past, where it all began for you, and we'll talk about those days in the VFL and a lot more to talk about with Michael Barlow, my guest on This Is Your Sporting Life, for Tobin Brothers Funeral Celebrating Lives, and we'll have a lot more with Michael after the break. This is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. And my guest after 141 AFL games and hopefully a few more still to come is Michael Barlow. Mick, where did it all begin? Shepparton? It did, yeah. Shepparton, my probably for earliest memory of uh, kind of high performance, I suppose, or, or representative stuff was when I was 15. Um, so I was always quite a handy f- footballer growing up. Um, not in the, probably the top five or six, in, probably not in the top two or three of my team, but five or six. So I had a f- um, few handy players around me and went down to try out for the schoolboys in um, the Golden Valley. So that would have been, there would have been 150 trying out for this under 15 schoolboys. And I pr- probably thought I would have not made the initial final squad, but I thought I'd make a few cuts. Um, and I went down and, and the one training session and, did the training session and then they kind of read out a group of names at the end and you quickly figure – I can't remember if they read out the names that 
to, to that can go home. If your name wasn't read, you, you stay behind and see a coach. But you quickly realised I was in the group that I'm going to get give them my marching orders here. And um, yeah, to this day, one of my really good mates, best mate, probably Sam White, who wasn't much of a player, back pocket, would just lock down. And anyway, he he got through. And this was a moment of, you know, this was, was a moment where, okay, career go one or two ways. It's Sam's gone further than you in this cut. You mustn't be very good. I got told by the coach, you know, what do you got to work on? He just said, oh, your size is a bit, I was quite small. Your size and, and, and your kick, you've got to improve your kick. And it might have been you were too slow, but I've, I've battled all that stuff the whole way through. And I remember I was the last one to kind of get the news. And I walked across the oval and Dad, Dad's was the last car there. And I got a bit emotional when I got to the car. And I, you kind of realise later on down the track how much it affects your parents and the people that are invested in you, your emotions. And I think I started crying and he's just like, no, nah. he, he was just there for me. And um, so that's kind of where it started. That That rejection was... Kind of okay, which way is it going to go? Um, and Dad tells the story that I think that night he had a bit of a sleepless night because I used to get up every morning and go for a run, and he was like, "Well, this would be interesting. See if he, if it, how much it affects him." And I got up and went for the run, and he reckons he was pretty proud of me that day, which is kind of cho- cho- only told me that down the track. But um, that's kind of where it started, and yeah, Shep United was my local club. I went away to Assumption and have gradually kind of matured into my body, got bigger and. And um, not much quicker, but got bigger and could compete a bit more. And, um, yeah, it kind of flowed on from there. So you didn't go through the traditional system, the TAC cut, where the young talent is identified, but the tentacles of recruiters go to every area of football. Were there any nibbles at that stage from AFL clubs? Did you have any interest shown? Nah, well, through school, not really. So I just played school footy. Um, never got into the Cannons or Bush Rangers. Um and probably rightfully so. I, again, I, I'd probably acknowledge I was a bit off it. Um, but I had a really good... Uh, and then I went and played local footy at Shep United for two years, just my local club. First year I was at uni, lived on campus at St Mary's, um, studying town planning. And the lifestyle probably got to me a little bit. I'd, halfway through the year, I think the coach had a word to me. And he was like, mate, you're not going that well and you might, we might have put you in the twos. And he kind of said, you know, you can still enjoy maybe just midweek, let's balance up, do some training and <laughs> clear your head and get back and play. Um, Steve Hazelman was his name and, and he was a really significant coach in my time at Shep United and that straightened me up a bit because I kind of probably was just shifting through and, and taking the taking the proverbial out of it a bit and I had a good back end of the year there. The next year, I, I can't remember if I, I... I was always into my fitness and that, but I, so I probably applied myself a lot more and just played local footy again, but... Um, had a really good year and had a year where I think I was, I was finding a lot of, I was probably getting 40 or 45 a week and kicking some goals and then started to get a few tags and, um, Craig Blizzard, who's the football operations guy at Shep United, unbeknown to me, had seeked out some recruiters to come and have a, come and have a look at me. Um, St Kilda, North and Carlton. And I think a couple said, thanks, but no thanks. And St Kilda was the one that, um, held some real interest and by the end of the year I was doing a pre-season there um, with Ross Lyon as the coach and and just loved it like did six seven weeks there with no guarantees and no expectations and just fell in love with it and fell in love I suppose with the the, the training and the how how um you know how intense it was but how how enjoyable it was would be for for to have a living and 
was really disappointed in the end um, when I didn't get the opportunity and kind of that triggered in my heart of hearts that I want to do this. Can I just jump ahead and I'll come back to the, the normal course of events, mm. but that time under Ross Lyon, do you reckon that was something that stuck in the back of his mind for down the track? Yeah, I mean, yeah, to jump ahead, he, he took over from Mark Harvey in 2012 and I'd had a pretty lean 2011 at Frio on the, off the back of my broken leg and I'm kind of still working back to whether you know I was physically capable to, capable to get back at the level. Um, I remember sitting there, I'd had a surgery on my leg and the news had come through and I was like, oh, no, this guy had rejected me in the past. But, you know, I was mature enough to know that the coach doesn't they, – they have a good say in it, but the list managers, that's their job to – okay, who, who do we want to get? But, <laughs> yeah, he walked in and I was like, I don't even know if he'd really remember it. Um, but if you know Ross, he remembers everything. So <laughs> that was kind of my first real meeting with Ross because when I was training at St Kilda, he was – you know, that is, um, you don't have much dialogue with the senior coach, but he, yeah, he, as soon as I walked through the door he and he was there, he had a great chat to me about it and said, yeah, no, of course I remember you. And, you know, you slipped through and we took some other guy and, yeah, they'll forever regret it, but he, he's got me now. So he's, yeah, and I had a great, great career under Ross and really enjoyed it. We'll talk a bit more about that, but let's go to the VFL, the, the time that you mentioned in the VFL, and that's where I first got to see you. And it was clear to me, and I'm sure you probably heard, that I was rapping you all the time because you were just a ball magnet. You were getting 35, 40 touches at the VFL. You were a class above them. Did you start to think at that time, well, maybe I'm not going down the traditional path, but there's still a hope here the way I'm going? Yeah, and I think it's been apparent a lot throughout my career that I had to go um, obscure ways to get, get through the door, I suppose, Um so and that was that was the first real um challenge was okay, first year at Werribee. Even then I was probably a bit um oblivious to what was required to be an elite athlete and and because I, I was told, go away, have a good year, um, come at the end of the year we'll we'll touch base and we'll see where we're at. And I had quite a good year that first year at the VFL, twenty two thousand and eight. Um played kind of half forward and that was the role I played and and you know, still found a bit of the ball, kicked a few goals. Um, but it was quite new to me, playing high half forward, and thought I did a quite a good job and didn't didn't get a call off any recruiters at the end of the year. So that was a bit disheartening. And that was an opportunity probably to say, right, all right I might head back and just play local footy. And that was kind of the plan. One, and have a crack, doesn't work. Comfort levels back at Sheppard United. Um, and then what happened from there was... Simon Atkins, who was a coach at Werribee, pretty much sat me down. He was as distraught as I was with it, and he just said, look, we'll get you drafted. Um, we'll play your halfback, we'll play your wing, we'll play him in the midfield, we'll get you to take the kickouts if they don't think you can kick. It was, And that was a moment where I was like, you know, I met some great people at Werribee, like Dom Gleeson, um, James Saker, Michael, the, the blokes, like any footy club, you go, you fall in, fall in love with the place and the environment and make lifelong friends. So Axe was huge in just saying, we'll get you, we'll get you there. And the next year was the year that I played all those different positions and, um, yeah, probably averaged, you know, kind of mid-30s and um, probably, again, was fitter. It's probably been a slow grind to get us quite a good natural fitness base, but to to keep chunking that work in and find different paths to, to get fitter and stronger. And, um, yeah, eventually got, you know, got my chance at the end of that year. 
So that was the Fothergill round middle year um, for the best young player. I remember interviewing you on the stage, I think, when you won the medal that night Mm. and you were talking about your aspirations. The fact that you actually won that medal, do you think that it brought you to the attention? Did it take another step up and you became a little bit more in the consciousness of the people who were making the decisions? Um, Absolutely. I think I was reading the article on it yesterday because Josh Corbett just won it from Werribee and he's a big chance to get drafted. which I'd hope hope he does. And I think the years before were Valenti and Nahas and Davenport. So they were three from three. So it was starting to build quite a reputation that, I mean, again, there's no guarantees of it. But um, when I did win that, you know, you, I think the first, I remember kind of being on the AFL website for it and you're like, oh, you're kind of starting to become something here. And um, yeah, so I thought that was a huge. Um, Accolade and probably as significant as any because, as you say, the the VFL is made up of you know, majority under twenty three players. So to be picked as the the most well performed one of that year um, kind of gives them a reason to to pick you. So when did Fremantle come knocking? Uh, I met with about ten clubs that that preseason, um, that off season, <coughs> and um, Freo was kind of a, an obscure one. They were quite. Um, got distanced in how they approached it. There were some ones that were, I remember Essendon were very keen, and um, there was, I think, the knock, there was a few knocks at the end of it, but Freo was one that kind of stayed away, stayed away, and then um, it wasn't until the morning of the rookie draft, which um, Marty Pascu, who's now my manager, rang me and said, You're gonna, you're going to, worst case, get picked up at Freo by 20, a 24 rookie pick. And I kind of thought I'd been burnt a fair few times before, so I didn't kind of take it as gospel. And then, yeah, pick eight came up, and I, can't, I my mum was there. And I've told this story a few times that I didn't really want anyone to be there because I'd been, I'd had a few people there on the draft night against my will, to be honest. And you know, they were really good mates that were like, right, we're there with you, whether it happens or not. Come the rookie draft morning, it was so probably they all have commitments anyway, so they can't be there. But I was like, mum insisted she wants to be there and the pick eight came and I was like this is a fair chance here but I'm not telling anyone and then it got picked and it was the old days when you're on the computer kind of refreshing refreshing and it popped up and um yeah to this day that's one of the most special moments of my career just getting I suppose that was it's, it's a whole life's worth of work really but that period from probably St Kilda to the Werribee two years where it's Became, you know, I became a bit obsessed with it. The fact that it was a club over the other side of the country, did it matter or it was just wherever it went, nah, wherever it took? Not at all. I was excited by it. I was, any opportunity um, would have been great. I lived in Kensington at the time, so North was about 500 metres away mm. or Freo was the furthest, but I couldn't, yeah, couldn't have cared less and it worked out really well, Fremantle. Um, yeah, the environment there, which I first walked into, I probably... Um, see it a bit now like I, I first got over there and they were pr- pretty much rebuilding but it all happened pretty quickly I mean we made the finals the first year I was there but it was pretty much 35 new players in the last three years or something um, and that was probably the perfect club because you're like if you're gonna it's probably the nowadays what sometimes is an older player begrudge when they play the kids and they give them opportunity um, ahead of you it probably had, it happened with me I probably felt I really, yeah, had done the the body of work to get the opportunity, but 
Um, I probably looked at the list when I got picked up and I was like, yeah, this is a great opportunity. And it certainly proved to be that. We'll talk about how you started at Fremantle and then that day where your body changed and your football career changed to a certain extent when we come back on the other side of the break. With Michael Barlow on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals, Celebrating Lives. This is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan for Tobin Brothers Funerals, Celebrating Lives. And Michael Barlow from the Dockers and the Suns is my guest on This Is Your Sporting Life. Mick, you burst onto the scene after all that work, your body of work you spoke about, and you're playing AFL footy. And then you turn up and you just kept on getting it. And everybody's saying, where did this bloke come from? Yeah, I I don't say this lightly, but I found it um, probably easier at at the elite AFL level because you're just surrounded with VFL, there's great players, but AFL... Have, you get a handball and you receive it in flight. It's, it's like Stephen Hill kicking it to you. And then you've just got time. Um, so the first part, and then I, I quickly found it, it got a bit harder as it went on. Um, and then you're probably in, and you, there's probably some liberties afforded to you, probably defensively. And you know when you when you're a first to ten game player, it's you know, they'll cop a bit of the the errors or the obliviousness to team defence or whatever, but the longer you're in the in the game, it's yeah, there's a bit more scrutiny on you. So really enjoyed that first little period. And again, I just spoke about how we had a new team. It had been, I think, Stephen Hill was in his second year. You know, Anthony Morabito came in, played 22 games first year. Um, uh, Nat Fife had just come to the club. So there was all these blokes that I'd end up playing for seven years with um, that we, we were just living our dream and it was all... Um, and then we'd had, you know, the right amount of experience with Pav and McFarland, and it, and, uh, yeah, it was, you know, it brings it's pretty, pretty set like it's a, it's a real type of experience to, to get out there and play AFL, and um, yeah, as you said, halfway through that year, it, it, uh, it broke down. Pardon the pun. It did break down, um, but it was only after you won the Glen Denning Medal for the the Derby, as they call it over there, and you just kept on racking up possessions. But then that day that changed everything. What are your recollections about that day? I I remember my brothers being over there. They'd come to my first game in person and they were over for a trip. Um, and it was going to be the first time I met my brother's now wife. So she was at the ground. So I remember in the morning it was, um, you know, I'd organised a place for dinner that night and it was really late in the game. And I actually recall the incident. So Dylan Robertson had it. Um, in the middle of the ground and left foot flight, I was running down the wing and I just remember thinking, I was, it was a moment I was like, how quickly catched up with you because I was like, how good is this? Like it's, we're winning, you know, it's, I'm going all right, it's, family's in town and then went back and, you know, um, boom, crash wallop kind of thing and um, I remember, I remember thinking, nah, I knew there was something wrong Um but I kind of didn't allow myself to enter the thought. I was like, no, no, it'll be right. No, well, you tried to get up. Yeah, so I got up and saw it wobble a bit down low and um, quickly hit the deck again. And I remember when it happened, I was like, I just want to get get out of there. You feel half, I mean, not embarrassed, but you feel like, I don't, yeah, I didn't like the thought of, you know, probably 40,000 people looking at you thinking, what's wrong with you? Like, it's, um, it's pretty evident. Um, but then, within about 
20 minutes. I was in the rooms and in tears and um, pretty emotional. Brothers walked in. I remember my brother, Dom, Dom walked in. He's quite – they're both – Herb and Dom, they walked in and they were just they had a smile on their face and they're just like, you know, because at the end of the day, they don't really care if you're a football. They just – that you're their brother. Um, and they walked in and they were just – they put me with ease pretty quickly because I was crying and they're like, what are you crying for, mate? Don't cry. It's bigger. And, and were I, you crying because of disappointment or pain or a combination of uh, both? Probably – the morphine stick kicks in and then all sorts of emotions come through. There was no pain. Um, None at all? Nah, I can't remember any pain. Um, and then just I think the emotion of it, I remember I half felt like I'd let the family down, which just sounds stupid but because even the littlest thing that I'd had the booking for dinner that night and I was like, I won't be able to make dinner and they just laughed and <laughs> you're like, you're an idiot. And um, and they, they were like, yeah, we'll still go. Like it's. You won't ruin our night, kind of thing, which I love. I love my family's kind of attitude to things. Um, and they're, you know, they, all they, they just came in and they just put you at ease pretty quickly because it wasn't drama or it was just, you know, we're here regardless. It doesn't matter what happens. After that day, how long did it take before you got full confidence in your body back? About two years to the day, I reckon. It was, there was a game at, the MCG against Richmond, 2012. Um, so I did it mid-2010. Got back mid-2011 and couldn't go. Like we Got back for the last half of the year. Team was beat up. I was beat up. We'd lost nine out of the last ten, which is probably catastrophic to halves' coaching career. Um, I had just bad like, uh, compartment syndrome and shin splints and stress reactions. Um, got through that year and kind of reset myself for the 2012 and again kind of was a really modified program over that summer and Ross had kind of come in and he, he was he uh, which I really appreciate he kind of said if, if we get you to the starting line we'll play you um, which put you at ease because it's like okay that gives you some some direction and, and back the program they put in place Jace Webb and Michael Dobbin they put in a program where I wouldn't train much I'd do enough Um but again, I was sore. I was had to play the sub the first few weeks of the year because I probably couldn't play more than five k's, and I was sore after games. And again, wouldn't train, and um, had some moments where I thought it might not ever go away. And um, kind of felt there was a lot of moments where I'd even walk around and it'd feel like a hammer was just whacking you in the shin. Um, and then it was about midway that year, as I said, like there was a wet day at. Uh, MCG against Richmond it was a great win for the club I remember it was kind of the start of that period where Ross was like doesn't matter where we play where we go who we who we have who we don't Sandlands did his toe Pav wasn't playing and John Griffin stood up and got three votes and um, we had a great win and I remember after the game I was like I felt really good I didn't want to jinx it because I was like the next day is usually bad and I'll, the next day I woke up and I could walk really un, unrestricted and since then I haven't I have some little issues, like I've had, you know, some minor issues with it along the journey. I even had a bit this year, um, but I don't think it never from that point kind of affected me from training or playing. So that was good. The derbies we spoke about, you win the medal in your first one. They're the big occasions in WA football. What about the final at Geelong? Is that mm. just about the biggest game that you played in and, and the best result that you played in? Yeah, that was huge, and that's. The best 
game I've been a part of. That and probably the prelim the week after. But that qualifying final 2013, I remember we were, I've said it a few times, we were a byproduct of that top four. It was, okay, there was Geelong, uh, there was Hawthorne, and there was Sydney. And then there was us. And it was like, well, Freo won't, they'll be out, straight sets kind of thing. But and it was almost accepted that once Geelong actually got the battle for the final down there, yeah. then they said, all right, well, we tick that one off and yeah. then we start yeah, thinking about that, what and happens Yeah, and that was all the commentary around it. So the, for context, the, the, grand, the final was put down at um, now GMHBA Stadium, formerly Skilled Stadium. And I remember the beauty of Ross as a coach and our playing group was we trusted each other so much, but our trust in Ross was huge that he he'd walked in early that morning we'd heard and there's murmuring. It's like, well, we're playing in Geelong, We'd beaten them at the G the year before at the final. I'm like, this isn't fair. But straight away, it's like, right, this is the scenario. We're playing in Geelong. We don't agree with it, but it is what it is. And it doesn't – we can sulk about it. We can throw the baby out the bathwater and go down there and get flogged and come home. Or we galvanise. We, 22 of us go down there. It's us. He always had a great philosophy. It's us against – Pav had it as well, 35,000, and they're the best. Like, it's no one wants you to win. So let's go spoil like spoil the party, and we had to over. Like I, I'd never been. I was always anxious going into games about you know the result and how you go. But that game, I was just. It was like a badge of honour. Like how good is this? This is like the first quarter we were average, and I was going average. I remember at quarter time I was thinking I'm going to get subbed out here. There's <laughs> things that go through your mind like I'm going to get something. This could, then I'll probably be out of the team. And but then I just focus. I remember Ross came down and said, "That's all right." Like. We missed a couple, tidy this up, tidy that up, and then everyone just – it was the best game of football I've ever been involved in because it wasn't a game of beautiful skill. or There was moments of beautiful – but it was hard. It was like who who went harder for longer, and that's what I love about footy, and that's what I felt I brought. That's just can keep rocking up to the contest and keep digging in. You're going to make an error here or there. But um, got to the point – I remember, yeah, it was like seesawing – and second quarter, I kicked a couple of goals and it quickly put to, to rest that I might not get subbed out, which is nice. And then third quarter, we kind of seesawed the result and we're up, down, up, down, got to three-quarter time and we were just like, this is where we wanted to be. And you could tell they were getting a bit edgy and anxious and the crowd down there, they get quite antsy and they're, they're, um, they're, they're a very passionate crowd. And, yeah, when Stephen Hill kicked that goal in um, the last quarter, that run, I remember we, we yeah we had them because it was not long left ten points up but there were about three or four of us that were running behind Stephen I remember a few Geelong players had stopped and I looked around and I was like yeah we're like we've, we've gone longer and we've gone hard and that was our philosophy and I remember walking off that game that just the so um, just so excited because you're going home to a home prelim and yeah if you can bottle any emotion that's the one when you kind of defy the odds and. Um, Stick it to the man a little bit. Yeah. So many great memories of that day. We're just about out of time. When we come back, though, I want to put the final chapter on, and that is the transition from Fremantle to the Gold Coast and how that all came about. And we'll chat with Michael Barlow about that when we come back on the other side of the break, our final segment on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals, Celebrating Lives. This is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. 
Our final segment with Michael Barlow before we talk about the end of the time at Fremantle. Mick, we might talk about that game that happened a couple of weeks after the game that we were just talking about. The grand final, the big one. What yeah. an experience. Yeah, huge experience. And I probably remember a lot less of that one than I did the qualifying final down at Geelong. Um, the week was just a blur. It all happened really quickly. The, the euphoria around Fremantle that week was like nothing I'd ever experienced. I mean... I remember walking through the airport to the plane and it was just, there was roped off cordons and you had to go, it was absolutely phenomenal. Um, and then, yeah, unfortunately the game came and went and we had our opportunities and, um, yeah, we missed out. But oh, I remember saying and kind of reflecting on it for a long time afterwards that whilst I, you know, to this point haven't won a premiership, um, you know, I, I feel really proud of that group and to have gone to you know, the nth degree to get one and, and fall short with that group. I'm, I'm as proud as that of that um, as anything um, because, as I said, there was probably – that was a culmination of, you know, we'd been there – I'd been there four years, a few blokes, five or six. So that was, you know, the, we'd been together for so long. It wasn't like you were all put together for one year. It was a build-up of, of um, yeah, some pretty strong relationships. I don't remember an awful lot about the game that day. It's funny, sometimes, as you said, you can remember some games better than others. My abiding memory of that day, we were doing an outside broadcast out near the practice wicket areas, and the Purple Army came over the bridge, and it was unbelievable that there would be that many Fremantle supporters in that collective group, and they just kept on coming and coming. The support that day for your team in Melbourne, across the other side of the country, was phenomenal. Yeah, it was outstanding. And, and again, I, I probably don't remember much of it. I remember sitting down after the game when they do the presentation to the winning team and I remember looking around the stadium and not none had left. Like they'd, we'd just, I suppose you felt like you'd let them down, but we actually probably hadn't. They were proud and they stayed and they watched and it was still full. Like you probably see a lot of grand finals where, you know, your team is done and then people want to get to the bar as quick as they can or but they they hadn't left and um yeah that was pretty a moment of kind of you like you feel probably awful at the same time as you are proud but um yeah they were pretty they were fairly passionate and supportive group and um yeah pretty uh stoked to have played there for so long and been involved with such a great supporter base so a couple of years later, your time in the West came to an end. How did that all come about? And were you upset about the way it came to an end? Uh, probably similar to this year. I'd, I'd had a fair bit of time to prepare for it because I was. we'd gone 0 and 10 at the start of the year. We'd tried, tried some things at the start of the year game plan-wise that hadn't worked um, to probably try and chase the top top two or three that – We'd, we'd kind of been top four for that that, that period, but we probably had to change something. Um, and it didn't work. And, you know, my form for the first half of the year was average at best. Um, and then I got dropped and probably had moments where I was like, oh, this might be it. Like, it, it happens, as you say, it happens pretty quick. Yeah. So I've gone from playing in four finals in a row, finishing top four three years in a row, being a significant part of it to halfway through the next year, you're out of the team, you're out of contract, you're in trouble. And, um, you know, I speak a lot about probably my admiration for Ross and we've had our, you know, pretty severe conversations over the time. Like I'll get to like the exit meeting eventually, but, um, you know, he said, you're out of the team, go back, do this. And 
we'll see where we're at. So I went back to play Waffle for a couple of weeks and went well. The team didn't go so well in the one, so I was back in. We're zero and ten, I think. And he goes, right, we're gonna, you're gonna tag. And I petrified because I hadn't done it before. And I was like, this bloke's looking for a way to throw me off the cliff and just say, yeah, you can't do that, mate. You're out. And that was I was always respect him for that because he he tried to find ways for me to to contribute because I'd played high half forward for a number of years um, with varying levels of success, probably 13, 14 really well, 15. Um, we probably changed our game style a bit so it was a bit more permanent forward. And with our depth of midfield with, you know, Mundy, Fife, Neil came in there, then we liked DeBoer and Subin. So I was kind of dropping down the pecking order. Um, so at times you become a victim of being the best at doing uh, – onerous task like that high half forward so you got me to tag and I did that really well for probably four or five weeks which I think probably opened up my career to other clubs I remember when I went to the Suns that Rocket was big yeah we saw your tag we like it we'll get you to do it a fair bit and I did my shoulder in round 17 against the Cats and yeah it's that the mortality of my career at Freo was so I did it I got up I knew I'd done something. I'd never done a shoulder, and it was quite a bit of – I thought, yeah, it would have been a stinger. I'd go get some work on it, and, and I just couldn't lift it. And after about 15 minutes, it wouldn't lift, so there was something severely wrong. And so they cut the jumper off me, and I remember, like, crying again. A few tears in that change room. <laughs> crying again, thinking, that's it. Like, it's Marshall Stockton was the physio and, you know, had been there the whole time I'd been there. And um, Ken Withers, the doctor, who who's – still there he's been there since 95 I think and you share so many experiences though. they just wrap their arms around me and because they know people know in the club what's going to happen um, and I was like yeah that's, uh, that's probably it um, and they cut the jumper off me you know that's the only way they were going to get off me so um, got the surgery at the end of that year and had some really bad nerve damage so I've had some nerve issues through my career but this one was when where the fractures were in my shoulder the nerve got caught and tangled so the surgery was very uh, delicate so they got it out but the nerve was going to take some time to get better so that was again some periods where I was like well gee like where am I at because I don't know if my arm's going to fix itself clubs will be turned off that which I'm sure they were Um, and Frio um, I think there wasn't much I could do even if I finished out the year and continued to play really well I think their list management strategy was going to be um, we love him. We love you. Love what you've done, but you've got to go. Um, and that was hard conversation with Ross and the Ross and Chris Bond, who I have great um, admiration for. Who sat me down, and I knew it was coming. Like I was prepared, and they, but they were they were on reflection. They were really good because they allowed me to to speak and speak my mind a bit. And they wouldn't have really liked probably some of the things I said and challenged them on. It wasn't purely you know having a go, but it was. There were some things I said, which I stand by, that challenged them on, you know, what what I'd done, and and you know, to be pushed out the door was was pretty hard, but it happens every year. Um, but yeah, on reflection, I really appreciated their ability to ask you know questions and see and check in with my st- mental state and and welfare um, for some time after that as well. Which was, I remember when I left, Bondi rang Dad. Um, so such as kind of the care that Freo showed. Rang Dad and was worried about me in terms of yeah, probably yeah, 
when you've lost your job and you don't know what's next and your shoulder's not working. Um, I think Dad was quite sh- short with Chris Bond that, that day, but now they bloody text each other every month. <laughs> so it's um, it, that was the end of it. And I remember, again, it was – I didn't get tra- – because I'd told them during the year that I'm, I'm probably going to have to try and get traded. And I'd, the shoulder didn't help. I didn't get traded. So I ended up getting a delisted free, like, free agency option, which is a good rule now. Um, yeah, so – but that was kind of the end of Freo and – I was shattered to kind of finish it. I remember running off with my shoulder, and again, it's one of those moments. This is the last time I'll probably, you know, compete for this club. Mm. Mm. And we've talked about what happened after that, the time at the Gold Coast. We're just about out of time, so I want to ask you two more things. If I'm sitting here and I'm a prospective club that you are presenting a case to, give me 30 seconds as to what you can bring to my football club and the experience that you've had. What can you do if you come into this club? Yeah, I compete. Like, that's what I do. I've, I, um, I've always said I'm not, not never going to be the most perfect bloke with the ball. Um, the knock on the speed's always been there, but I've found a way to, to have 140 games and be involved in that successful Frio period and, and learn off great leaders, um, you know, playing and coaching. And you know, I think my training standards have always been at a higher level than some, and if, if that rubs off, I felt it did at the Suns, it would have rubbed off on, you know, the younger group, which I'm, I was told it did from, from some of them, and that's what I'll do. I'll, I'll provide an example. I'll I'll compete. Kind of the story at Geelong qualifying final, We just I'll just go to the end. Um, uh, you, you know, you'll cop a little bit, um, as I said, skill and speed, but um, to play footy and compete, that's all I'll bring. And finally, Michael, if that pitch doesn't work and your career ends at 141 games, are you content with what you've done? You're content that for a bloke who wasn't that quick but was pretty smart with the footy that you've got every last drop out of the lemon? Uh, well, probably not every last drop at the moment because I feel like I can still go, definitely. But, yeah, you're right. Like, I'll be absolutely – like even the two, the two years I've had to reflect on the Frio career, um, yeah, I, I wouldn't change much, at if anything. Um and I've, I've, I feel like, yeah, I've walked away proud of how I've held myself, held myself, um, despite challenges and, and adversity and what and whatnot. But also got quite a lot of reward for that effort. It's been a remarkable story. Um, it was such a joy for me to see you playing in the VFL and make it through to the top level. Those of us who saw you playing such good footy for so long at VFL level thought you would be able to do it, and you did, and you proved it against the odds at times, and hopefully there might be one more chapter left in the story. Michael, thanks for coming in and sharing it with us. Thanks, Pete. No worries. Enjoyed it. Michael Barlow joining us on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funeral, celebrating lives. Another edition of the program, same time next week right here. Hope you can join us then. Want to witness the world's biggest football game? Head to iCanWin.com.au, predict Australia's score with a crystal ball, and it could be you and a friend at the FIFA World Cup Qatar 2022 semi finals, all thanks to McDonald's. Mackers, together and loving it. TNCs apply.